What comes first, seeing or believing? Seeing is believing, we're told all the time in science. You got to see it, you got to smell it, got to measure it, got to touch it. That's not true. God said just the opposite to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus says, what will I do? And Jesus said, you must be born again. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, how do I suspend my unbelief? You just choose to and say, God, if you're there and real, show me in a way I can't deny it. Zion, I build with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. I said let this world know me by your love. I think we've all had someone say to us, if we've not said it ourselves, I'll believe after I see it. But as we'll see today on Grow in Grace, when it comes to things of a spiritual nature, seeing clearly follows belief. We're in a study of John with Pastor Ed Ray, and today we bring you a look at chapter 11. Jesus' good friend Lazarus has just died, and it's an emotional scene when Jesus arrives. The Lord is about to convey an important message to them and us. We'll pick up the story now in verse 35. The shortest verse of the Bible, verse 35. Jesus wept. I want you to say that with me. One, two, three. Jesus wept. You learned a verse of scripture today. Congratulations, you memorized. Maybe it's your first verse for some of you. It's a little short, I agree, but now you won't ask somebody after the last service. So what's the scripture say? He said, Jesus, what was it? <laughs> really, two words, and you can't. Okay, so hang on to that. Jesus wept. John 11:35. Now, the word for weeping here means to weep intensely with no sound. It's kind of an interesting Greek word. Now, remember, John is a eyewitness. He's seen this, and he's watching tears come down Jesus' face, and that's why he truncated this verse is such a short one. It astounded him. And it was astounding to him for a couple of reasons, but mostly because the Jews believed in that God had feelings, but the Romans and the Greeks did not. The Romans and Greeks said that gods couldn't be affected by us because if we could make them happy or sad, then we would have control over them and they wouldn't be omniscient and omnipresent. So, Jesus is showing something that contradicts the Roman view of God. Apatheos is the Greek word. A in front of a Greek word means no passion, pathos, no pathos, no feelings, theos, God. So they believe that God didn't have any feeling. Here's Jesus showing pathos, showing emotions. The point is, we serve a God that feels what we feel. He said so. This is Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, but without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into his throne of grace. Throne of grace? Yeah. 
God has named his throne after the gift that he gives to you and I, grace. It's unmerited favor, unearned. You don't deserve it, he just gives it. So his throne of grace, if we go in boldly to his throne of grace, he says, come on down, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in time of need. In a tight spot this morning, you're in the right place. God is here, and he's pouring out mercy to all who ask. God, I need favor from you. I, I don't deserve it. I'm a sinful person, but I need for you to help me in this situation. Perfect, legitimate prayer, exactly what he's waiting for from you. Well, why doesn't he just give it? Because he doesn't want us to take it for granted. He wants us to, in fact, ask him. So God here, Jesus, has lost a loved one. He, he loves Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He, he said so. He's been hungry before. He fasted for 40 days. He's been betrayed by Judas. He knows what it is to have a friend betray you. He even understands your divorce if you're struggling with that. Because in Jeremiah and in Hosea, God said that he married himself to Israel. And they ran off with someone else. So he knows that pain. Jesus knows everything that's going on in your life. There's a woman in our church who's a professor. She's a teacher. And we were talking about this one day. And she said something that really stuck with me. She said, when Jesus is there at the tomb, notice that he doesn't give any Christian platitude. He doesn't offer a bumper sticker answer. You never see Jesus say to someone who's suffered a great loss, he never says, well, he's in a better place. Now, there's nothing wrong with saying that. It's true for any Christian who dies. They're in a better place. But Jesus didn't think that those little trite answers were good to use, so probably we shouldn't either with each other. When you have a friend who's lost a spouse of 10 or 20 or 30 years, well, they're in a better place. It's true they're in a better place, but better to say something like, I'm sorry for your loss. That's terrible. I feel your pain. I empathize. See, God empathizes. He doesn't sympathize. To sympathize means that you see what the other people are going through and you're sympathetic to their needs. But to empathize means to feel the same thing they feel. Jesus empathizes with you here. They misunderstood the rabbis. They said, well, see how he loved him. He's weeping because Lazarus was a friend of his. They miss what's going on here. Some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? There's always a critic. You know, there's no good turn that won't go unpunished. They knew Jesus had healed a blind man just recently before in John chapter 9. Then Jesus groaned again in his spirit. Ooh. Mm. He's upset. He came to the tomb. It was a cave. And a stone lay against it, rolled up against it. So you saw the shaft. You get exactly the picture. 
And Jesus said to them, take away the stone. Now, that's called an imperative. It's a command. It's not advice, okay? He's not saying, you know, it might be good if you took that stone away. He's in command. This is God speaking. Take away the stone. Martha, his sister, is still telling God what to do. Said, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Now, my wife warns me that I'm too cavalier about death, working in a hospital for years. I know that all kinds of things take place that it doesn't take a degree in medicine to know when somebody's been dead for a couple of days. Four days, no questions. Everything's the wrong color, stuff that should be down is bloated, things that should be up or down. And I'll just say, decay is not pretty, okay? And so she's saying, I don't want to see my brother in this condition. He's been dead for four days. What's the point? He's really dead. He's dead, dead. The other two people that Jesus raised from the dead, Jairus' daughter, she'd only been dead for a couple of hours. In fact, on the way, she died, and they came and told him. He was at a funeral for a little boy who was on a funeral pyre, and mother was a widow, and she was the only, she was the only one in his life, and she was broken, and Jesus walked up, put his hand on it. The kid sits up. So he's been dead maybe a day at the longest because Jews always bury their dead the same day. But this one, really, really dead. <laughs> dead, dead. She seems to be thinking that Jesus wants to look at the body. And I've been thinking about this a lot the last couple of weeks. How do we fit that into a modern situation? So have you ever been to a graveside service? You know, where everybody gathers, they go to a funeral and then they gather and the casket is brought up, there's an open grave. They usually put some nice artificial grass on it so it doesn't look too bad. And they put flowers and everything is to make you not think about what's going on in the casket, okay? And if it's a military funeral, then there's a flag and maybe even the 21-gun salute, and everybody is around listening. Imagine that situation, the last one you went to. And the pastor walks up and he says, open the casket. I want to see if he's really dead. Martha is trying to tell Jesus what to do. Now, an unsaved person is spiritually dead in very much the same way that we are physically dead. Colossians 2.13, and you being dead in your trespasses and sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Colossians 2.13, and in the Greek language, all, same as English, all, <laughs> all of it. So when a person is physically dead, they don't respond to physical things, stimuli. When a person is spiritually dead, they don't respond to spiritual things. Little or no interest in God. First time I went to church after years of being an atheist, I went in and I didn't want to hear any of it. I didn't believe in any of it. I was a working scientist. All of a sudden, this guy's talking about eternity like he knows what he's talking about. This is why he knows what he's talking about. Because eyewitnesses stopped and wrote it down. If you're here this morning as an atheist or an agnostic, I encourage you 
to set aside your unbelief. Just put it to the side to say, well, maybe today I might listen. What dead sinners need is not, in fact, more education. What you need is a rebirth, a new birth, born again. And God will do that to you if you just surrender to him. But you have to believe. We'll come back to that in just a second. You're listening to Pastor Ed Ray on Grow in Grace and a message based in John 11. Let's get right back to it, picking up in verse 40. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, there's that word again, if you would but trust, you would see the glory. The word glory is kabod. It means to display. It means you would see God's fullness displayed to you. If you would believe, seeing is believing, we're told all the time in science. You got to see it, got to smell it, got to measure it, got to touch it. That's not true. God said just the opposite to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus says, what will I do? And Jesus said, you must be born again. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, how do I suspend my unbelief? You just choose to for a minute, for 10, for 20, and say, God, if you're there and real, show me in a way I can't deny it. I challenge you to that because that's a prayer I prayed without knowing any of this. I'm sitting in a service and I said, if there is a God, if you can hear this, then show me something so that I can't deny it. And he did. (laughs) And that's why I'm sitting here this morning trying to give you the same encouragement. Set aside your objections. Set aside your doubt, your skepticism. Choose to believe for a short period of time. That's what happened here, verse 41. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was. John doesn't want us to misunderstand. This guy's dead. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and he prayed. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe. That they may believe that you sent me. I'm from heaven. I'm a heavenly visitor. Wow. Now when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus! Sorry, did I wake you up? Come forth. Well, it literally says that is why I did that. That wasn't theatrics. In the Greek language, it says he shouted, Lazarus, come forth. How much power does it take to raise the dead? It struck me that Lazarus heard, wow. Now, you have two amazing objects on the outside of your head, your ears. They allow us to hear by sound pressure. They're amazing. They have each eardrum, as we call it, tympanic membrane, has 100,000 sensors in it, 200,000 in your head. You can hear notes that range from 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz. A piano has 88 notes on a guitar, 70 or so, depending how you tune it. You can distinguish all of those plus another 1,400 notes. You can get them combined in chords and melody lines. On top of that, you can hear 2,500 different tones, different textures of sounds, brittle or 
bassy or... So your eardrum is so sensitive that it moves with every sound wave that hits it. It moves a tiny amount. It, one nanometer, one billionth of a meter, it only has to move. That is the width of a hydrogen atom. That's all your eardrum has to move before you hear something. I think my mother's hearing was a little more sensitive than that. She always knew when we were doing stuff, you know? So you have this fantastic ability in your head. You go up to Redlands community. I used to do this. You go in the sound room for the audiology department, you know, where they make hearing aids and things. And you get in the soundproof room, absolutely dead silence. And you listen very, very carefully. You can hear your own heart beating and the blood passing over your membrane, your eardrum. And in fact, if our ear was any more sensitive, it would sound like Niagara Falls all the time because our heart is pumping all the time. So we have this fantastic ability to hear, but we're alive. This guy's dead. And Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come forth. Why did he say his name? Because if he hadn't said his name, all the graves in the area would have opened up and people had been chaos running all over the place. Lazarus, just you, the rest of you stay still. <laughs> We're only working on him today. Lazarus, come forth. And he hears. What dead men can't hear? Are you sure? John chapter 5, verse 28, Jesus said, Do not marvel at this. For the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those that have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Both the righteous and the wicked will receive bodies, new ones, not the old one, not the stinky one. One day soon, every dead person will come to life. Wow. So he says his name, he shouts his name, and I assume you'll hear your name, and your eardrums will suddenly work even when you're dust in the bottom of the casket. And he who had died came bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, loose him, let him go. So about this time, in the first century, a Jewish rabbi was upset at the Jews because they're starting to bury their dead like the Romans did. You know, Romans put all this fine silk on them and put gold jewelry all over them. And he said, no, no, no. Job said, naked came I into the world, so naked will you go back to heaven. And so in the first century, you'd get a four-foot-wide piece of linen, and, it would, and they'd lay that down, put the body on it. Then at the feet it was twice as long as your height. And so then they would pick the other piece up and put it over. And then they would take strips of linen and they would tie your ankles together and then your knees and then your elbows to your body and finally one over your face that would go around your mouth so your mouth wouldn't gape open. They didn't want you talking after you were dead. And so that's what he's bound like. He's all bound up and he can't move. Lazarus, come forth. And 
he who had died came out and he's bound hand, foot with grave clothes and he said loose him and let him go. How do you come out when you're, you're tied together? You do this. Like stealing shoes at Walmart. You know, and he who was dead came out bound. Loose him. So the sisters go over and say, Lazarus, is that you? You know, let me take this off your face. Say, yeah, but I can't move, you know. And he doesn't say anything. And that drives me crazy because I want to know what heaven was like. You were there for four days. Now you imagine he's in heaven four days. The angel comes up. He says, Lazarus, I got some bad news. You're going back. No, no, that's not funny. Don't play jokes on me like that. I'm in paradise. This is amazing. He says, no, it's your sisters. (laughs) It's the sisters you gave me, Lord. I have two of them, so I can say that. So we don't know what he saw. According to early church fathers, he was 30 years old when he died. And he lived after he was resurrected 30 more years. And he never told anybody anything about what heaven was like. He didn't know, or it was erased from his memory, or he chose not to say anything. So we're stuck. You're just gonna have to wait till you see it yourself. Now, the next verse is amazing to me. The Jews, remember I said, were the Jewish rabbis, the leaders, the teachers in the temple, the Sanhedrin, the 70 top Supreme Court leaders. They who were at Mary's house, many of the Jews had come to Mary and had seen the things that Jesus did, believed in him. Jesus brought them to the tomb because he wanted them to see. He cared about religious people too who were wrong. You know, we always rejoice when somebody gets saved around here that has a, you know, an outrageous hell's angel, murder, drug addict, alcoholic, And we say, well, God, you're just amazing. But we forget that God loves religious hypocrites too. I won't ask for a show of hands. You know, I'm just saying. If you were raised in the church, don't feel bad. (laughs) You didn't get into the ugly stuff that the rest of us did. But believe that he saves sinners, of which we all are. Okay, so the key verse here besides Jesus wept is his statement about taking away the stone. I'm suggesting that every person in this room has a stone in their life, something that's walling them off from God, that's holding them back. If it's an atheist or agnostic I'm talking to, I assume they have the stone of unbelief, and we talked about that. You suspend your unbelief and you choose to believe for just a few moments and ask God to show himself and he'll respond. But there are a lot of other stones. The stone of fear. Something happened to you one time in your life and and you're afraid to step out and do things. There's a stone of unforgiveness that's over a lot of people's hearts. Somebody wronged them and they, they don't want to forgive them. They don't deserve forgiveness. So As I finish, I want you to think about any stone that God wants to remove from your life. wants you to take away, because that's what he said, take away the stone. We're going through the Gospel of John with Pastor Ed Ray here on Grow in Grace, and it's just a part of our Through the Bible study. If you'd like the CD, which contains the complete and uninterrupted message, call us today at 844- 7-7-GRACE. 
That's 844-77-GRACE. You can also listen to the program online at thepackinghouse.org. And again, we're at thepackinghouse.org. We're thankful to the Lord for this opportunity to share His Word over the radio, and maybe this is a ministry you'd like to support. This would be a wonderful time to hear from you, and we'll say thanks by sending you The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. This is a classic devotional that has moved the hearts of believers for well over a century. Each chapter focuses on one attitude of God, from God's infinitude to his immutability, grace and goodness. I think you'll find it to be both theologically rich and approachable. Again, we'll send you the knowledge of the holy when you give a gift of any amount to grow in grace. Just call us right now at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. And if you wouldn't mind in the next day or two, send off an email to let us know you're listening and what you're getting out of the present series in John. It's encouraging to hear how God is at work through Grow in Grace. Let us know what the Lord is doing in your life when you email us at packinghouseradio at aol.com. And then join us back here next time as we return to our study of the Gospel of John. This has been Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray, a presentation of the Packing House Christian Fellowship in Redlands, California. Sacrifice for everyone Faith, hope, love and harmony I said let this world know me by your